Well, just a little Bruce Almighty, just saying what all of us are thinking uh, a time or two in our lives. Good morning, everybody. We're so glad that you're here. Again, I want to extend a special welcome uh, to any of you that are new and visiting. We'd love the chance to meet you afterwards and get to know you a little bit more. It is no accident that you are here. And I'm just guessing that maybe uh, a few of us a time or two have said exactly that. Maybe not out loud, but in our prayer life, in our hearts. Bruce is in this film, Bruce Almighty, as several years ago, is struggling with God's will. And I'm guessing that just like him, all of us at one point or another in our lives have cried out, not smite me, almighty smiter, uh, but God, show me your will. God, show me a sign. Everybody say sign. Sign. God, show me a sign. Let me know that you're real. Give me a visible symbol that you're real, that you're near. God, give me some direction and purpose for my life. And of course, in the, in the clip, humorously, there was plenty of signs. In fact, a truckload uh, of signs. But in real life, it doesn't always work that way. Just a show of hands here this morning. We're all friends, and we can be honest uh, with each other. How many of you have said something similar to, to Jim Carrey's character there? Maybe not out loud, but how many of you ever said, show me a sign, God? Give, give me some direction, right? Don't, if your hand's down, don't lie. You're in church. Uh, God, God, give me some wisdom. I need to know that you're real. And there's nothing wrong with that. We can cry out to God in, in those ways, but some of you, I just have a feeling, are asking some pretty big questions in your life right now as well. You're saying, God, give me a sign that, that I'm going to make it in my marriage. Give me a sign that I, you know, should I, should I take this job or should I take that job? Should we buy this car or that car? Should we, should we stay where we're at or should we move to this house? God, give me some wisdom. What should we do with my, my child that's grown and making some decisions that I don't approve of? God, what should we do in, in parenting our, our young children? God, where should we move? What should my job be? What should we do with our finances? I got some relationship struggles with my friends. God, show me a sign. God, let me know that you are real. Now, you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but how many of you, when you prayed those prayers and you've asked God for wisdom and advice, did he give you uh, a flashing answer on the side of the road in a big sign? Probably not, right? There probably weren't multiple signs or big flashing lights. God doesn't always answer prayer in the same way. But here's what I believe we'll discover about the signs that God gives us. God is constantly trying to get our attention. The question is, are you listening? Are you watching? Just as the signs were right in his face and he couldn't see it, he wanted something, but God actually gave him later on in the movie what he needed the most. And I think what we're going to find as we dig into our story that you heard read today from Matthew 17, what we're going to find is that with Jesus, often he doesn't just give us what we want. More importantly, he gives us what we need, right? He doesn't just give us what we think we need. He gives us what we truly need. And more often than not, that's himself, that's knowing him. And that's really the purpose of Scripture, so we can get to know God better. Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus is the ultimate sign that communicates what God is like. And that's why we've been reading through, uh, during this season of Lent, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up uh, to Matthew chapter 17, or if you have your uh, Bible app on your phone, if you're going to tweet, tweet about the sermon. Uh, and so we're following through uh, these stories in Matthew, and our creative team is helping us do that these, this Lent with these uh, pictures around the worship center that they painted that kind of represent these different images of the story. And so today we're on this mountain one over here with the light shining out as we're going to look at Jesus's uh, transfiguration up on the mountain. And it all started with Jesus calling the disciples a few weeks ago uh, out of the boat. If you remember, that boat was a blank canvas when we started uh, about four weeks ago. And our creative team has been drawing and, and creating uh, on that to tell the story of Jesus in Matthew. 
But what Matthew's doing, as well as some of the other gospel writers in particular, they are helping us understand who Jesus is through communicating various signs about him. Everybody say signs. Various signs about Jesus. And Matthew's main goal is not just to tell you these stories, but to give you signs so that the people reading it then and us reading it now would know Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. He's the one we're looking for. And so as you look at verse 1 here, we dive into the story to help you understand what's going on. Jesus is well into his ministry, but there's a lot of people that still have a misunderstanding about who he actually is. Is Jesus just kind of like Moses come back, or is he like the next Elijah, is just another prophet or good teacher? People didn't really accept the fact, even at this point, that Jesus was God that he was actually the Messiah that the Jewish nation had been waiting for for thousands of years. But what Jesus shows us is three signs, or essentially the gospel writers, the way that they write this, they're writing in a way to show you these signs so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is what you need. Not just what you want, but what you need. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, Matthew, Matthew 17, verse One, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. Now, it's important to know as we go through this that all three, what are called synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they kind of drew their information uh, from the same source. As theologians study these things, John's kind of off here over uh, by himself. He tells some stories that we don't get in the other three, and it's just a little bit more uh, colorful. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all tell the same story. They just tell it in different ways. So although we're starting with Matthew, I'm going to pull in some details from Luke, actually, which help us understand the story a little bit more. And so we read that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and Luke adds the detail to pray with him. So Jesus has his circle of 12 disciples, but inside of that, he has an inner circle of three, his close friends. Just like you have your friends and acquaintances, but then you have those that are really tight around you. That's Peter, James, and John. And we read that Jesus takes them up to the mountain to pray. Now, I know that some of you, maybe in your your prayer time, one of the biggest concerns and worries that you have are, you know, does it come out right? And when I pray, I just never quite know if God hears me or not. It feels like he's far away. Can you imagine being Peter, James, and John and being invited into Jesus's prayer time up on the mountain, right? You have no excuses to pray and to think, I don't know if God's going to hear me or not, right? He's right there, right? You're going around the circle doing your popcorn prayer at the end of your Bible study, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm right here, right? And that's how close Jesus is to every one of us. He is not far when you pray. And so they're up there praying, but this is no ordinary prayer time. Verse 2. There he was transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Or Luke adds this detail. He said, Jesus' clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Can you imagine that? He's covered in head to toe from this bright flash. And the gospel writers are giving us these details for reasons and that this is the first of several signs. Everybody say signs. The first of several signs that we would know who Jesus is. And we're not just going to talk about what the sign is. We're going to talk about the truth behind it, the deeper significance of it. And so it's important to know here this Greek word for flash of lightning, the light that Jesus was radiating out from him, this Greek word is exasperaton. Everybody say exasperaton. It's kind of a fun word to say. It's only used once in all of Scripture, and it is typically used to describe something that is so bright and so blinding that it literally covers everything. Like you can't see 
anything else. It is not a light that shined from the outside in, but something that radiates out from something or someone. It is literally the brightest light that Scripture talks about, that it was literally covering Jesus. And so I was thinking about this. This is a hard thing to grasp because we don't see this every day. So I was like, what visual could I give everybody to give them an idea and a picture of what the transfiguration might have looked like? And so just to give you an idea of that, we go to our friends, the Lord of the Rings. And there's three characters that literally, follow me here, go up a mountain and witness their leader, Gandalf, be exasperated, right, transfigured before them, and they meet Gandalf the White. Let's take a look. And that is exactly how it happened in Matthew 17. Right there. Exact, minus the swords and the bow and arrows and the elves and everything like that. But other than that, it's exactly the same. Okay? The writer of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, best friends with C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, and every story that they write is based on something. Hmm, I wonder where he got that idea, right? Three friends go up and are blinded by this light. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is not a wizard. Okay, this isn't some Hollywood deal because a few chapters later, just a little while later, Jesus stands up in front of the crowds and he says this, I'm the light of the world. I I don't like carry a light with me. There's not a light that shines on me. I am the light. I am the source of the light. Whenever you walk in darkness, Jesus says, as long as you're with me, you're never going to be alone. I am the light of the The world. So the sign that we're given here is this blinding light. But if you don't know and understand the significance of what is happening here, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is telling us this is God. The same God that in Genesis 1 said, let there be light. Light is literally radiating out of him. He is the source of all light. Meaning if you hang with Jesus and if you're always with him, you're never going to walk in darkness. You're never going to be alone. And some of you feel like you're living in darkness today. Some of you are going through something in your, light and just, in your life and it feels dark and you feel alone and you feel like nobody cares and nobody's with you. If you're with Jesus, if you're in him, you're never alone. And that's the promise that we get from this light. It's not just a light that you will never be alone as long as you stay with Jesus. Pay attention to the signs. Some of you are thinking every time I go through my feed on my Facebook, every time I read the news or turn on the news or whatever it is, it seems like our world is getting darker and darker. And Jesus has this incredible promise. He says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and will never overcome it. Whatever we're up against as a nation and whatever we're up against as a world, whatever you're up against in your own life, there is a light. There is an exasperate light that nothing is brighter, that shines out with this blinding light into a dark, dark world. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the answer. You stay with me and you're never going to lose your way. Pay attention to the signs. So if that wasn't overwhelming enough for the disciples that they've been blinded by the light of Jesus, we continue on in verse 3. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, which you should know Moses and Elijah are dead. So this is like an Obi-Wan Kenobi hologram moment right here where he's like back from the dead and all of a sudden they're there. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Peter always opens his big mouth, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will put up three shelters or three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I'll build a fire. We'll make s'mores. It'll be great. The whole deal up here, right? So if you're the three disciples, you're good, God-fearing Jews, and their whole life they've been brought up with kind of heroes of their faith. 
If there was a Mount Rushmore of the Jewish faith, one of those faces would be Moses, and one of them would be Elijah for sure. These are heroes of the faith, and all of a sudden, they're standing there talking to Jesus right in front of them. Okay, so can you imagine being Peter, James, and John and coming back down from your hiking prayer trip with Jesus and all the disciples are waiting for you at the trailhead going, hey, guys, how was your little prayer meeting with Jesus at the top of the mountain? Uh, well, Jesus started glowing and blinding us like a flash of lightning, and then all of a sudden he started talking to, uh, you know, Elijah and Moses, and they're dead, but it was great. But other than that, everything was completely normal, right? What? This is incredible. And so if you look at this a little bit closer, you pay attention to who was there. Moses, who you remember God gave the Israelites the law through Moses and kind of represents that part of their story and receiving the law from God. And then you have Elijah, who's kind of the central prophet of all prophets. Well, for thousands of years as a Jew, you know that it was prophesied that when the Messiah came, that he would be the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. That he would be the, the, the combination, the epitome of everything that Moses and Elijah represented. And so if you're a Jew and you're reading this story or you're hearing about this, this is the Mount Rushmore of the faith. And symbolically, nobody can stand in the middle. Jesus was standing in the middle talking to them. Nobody can stand there except God. Jesus isn't a celebrity. He's not a good teacher. He's not a, a guy that can give you some good quotes once in a while that you can post on your Facebook page. He's not somebody that offers some suggestions or feel-good moments for your life. He's in the center. Nobody can stand there except the Messiah himself. And the beautiful thing about all these stories is Jesus is constantly making claims and by these signs about who he is, but he's never going to force himself on you. He's never going to kick down the door into your life and say, you have to believe in me. Instead, Jesus reveals who he is, and we're forced to ask the question for ourselves, just as everybody around Jesus in those days was forced to ask the question, who is this Jesus? Is he Moses? Is he another prophet like Elijah? Or is is he something different? And if he's God, boy, my life is going to look a lot different than it does now because I can have a personal relationship with God, with the God that created me. Who is Jesus to you? And the thing is, we would never say this out loud, but some of us live as if Jesus is a little bit more like Moses or a little bit more like Elijah and not the one standing in the middle. Some of us see Jesus and this whole Christianity thing as kind of a, a law thing. It's all, you know, Jesus is kind of the law guy like Moses, and he's the religious guy, and he brings the, the list of rules and do's and don'ts, and, and Christianity is really about, you know, swearing less and drinking less and, and just avoiding all the bad things and trying to be a pretty good person and, and, and measure up. Sometimes it just frustrates me to no end, and I hurt when people say, I'm not a very good Christian. You ever hear people say that? Maybe you said that yourself. I just don't measure up. I'm not a very good Christian. That phrase makes zero sense. It does not, there is no such thing as a good or bad Christian. You are either a sinner that has been saved by grace, which means that you are loved and valued and accepted and have infinite worth because of what Jesus has done on the cross or not. There's no middle ground there. It's not like, well, I try to be a pretty good Christian. You are. You're good. Jesus has made you good by what he's done on the cross. So don't discredit what he's already done. Jesus isn't Moses. He's not the law guy. But some of you live like Jesus is more of like a, a prophet, like kind of an Elijah guy on this side. And like, well, you know, prophets were kind of God's mouthpieces. They were the people that, that brought God's word to the rest of the people. And she's so like, well, I'll, I'll consider what Jesus has to say 
But I'll also consider what that article I read on Facebook was or that blog that I read or what my friends say or what the most popular opinion of the day is. And I'll kind of throw that in the mix with the Bible and we'll see what works the best for me. Jesus is saying, I'm not Moses. I'm not a prophet. Don't forget, I'm in the middle. I'm in the very center. And my question for you this morning is, is Jesus in the middle for you? Is he the very center of your life? Is Jesus the very center and driving force and purpose of your marriage? Is Jesus standing in the center of your parenting? Do you base your decisions in life off of Jesus and view them through the lens of who this God is and who Jesus has called you to be? Or is it just like, eh, what kind of whatever I feel like that, that this week and whatever everybody else is doing around me? Whatever the popular thing is of the day. How you do your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, every decision you make, how you spend your time. Is Jesus at the center for you? Because if not, you're constantly going to be tossed about. Is Jesus standing in the center of your life? I saw a great example of this week. I was spending some time this week in intense uh, focus and meditation and study for one of the most important jobs that I had this past week, and that was filling out my NCAA bracket for the tournament uh, and writing a sermon on the side as well. Uh, That's important too. But here's the thing, if I could just go on a soapbox for, how many of you enjoy basketball? Fill out your bracket this year. Okay, a few of you. Okay, good. So the rest of you understand that there's this big tournament, 64 teams. It's awesome. Everybody fills out these brackets. And here's the thing. Some of us weirdos actually watch college basketball the entire year and are somewhat educated in this. And so when we fill out our brackets, we have some sort of idea what's going on. Then there's my wife who fills out a bracket every year and chooses who wins based on if the mascots would beat each other up or not, right? Or the color of the team or how cute their name sounds. And the thing is, every year she wins. Every year she beats me. Like, what? Right? I actually watch these games and she does better than I do. So it's kind of a weird year this year because the Hawks or the Clones or the Panthers, there's no Iowa representatives. And so like, okay, I've done my homework. I've watched a lot of basketball. I'm just going to pick the the best team that's out there that I think. And so I'm just going to pick, I don't know, to win the whole thing. I'm going to pick Virginia. And for those of you that have been watching the games, you understand where I'm going with this. They are the number one team in the nation. No sweat. They're going all the way to the final four. They're going to win the championship. It's going to be great. The other night, I'm finishing up my sermon, literally, and I'm going to talk about Virginia and how they're God's team and they're going to go all the way. And all of a sudden, they start losing to this team that nobody's heard of and everybody's Googling, like, what is this team? They're, they're going to lose. Like, a number one seed has never lost to a 16 seed. This has never happened Ever. This is history. And they're playing, the, I had to look it up, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County Court of Clerks or something like that. I don't know what it was. It's this team that nobody's heard of, right? And all of a sudden they lose and it's like, what? This can't happen, right? My life is over, right? Now, some people think that way if, if, if basketball is your life. And you can think like, oh my word, this team, they, a massive collapse. They're going to be the laughing stock of college basketball for years. Nobody's going to let them forget it. I'm sure the players are distraught. I'm sure the coach is going to get fired. His life is over. He's just down in the dumps. And then a couple weeks ago, before that whole collapse happened, I read this. Go ahead and go to the next slide. This is Tony Bennett, not the singer, but the coach, uh, Tony Bennett of Virginia. And he says this. I have great things in my life, my love for my wife, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. Those are wonderful things. But when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you have with him, with what he's done for you and with what he's given you, 
they don't compare. That's the greatest truth I know. When Jesus stands at the center of your life, everything around you can be falling apart and you're gonna be okay. For some of you, you've based your life on some other hope and some other peace and some other well that you're running to to look for joy. And so when something doesn't go right in your life or life throws you a curveball or you face suffering or setbacks or difficulties, your whole world gets shaken up because Jesus isn't in the center. Jesus stood between Moses and Elijah and said, let me be your rock. Let me be your anchor. Is Jesus in the center of your life? Because basketball is not it. Jesus is it. So the sign is that we have these Bible heroes. The moral of the story, Jesus is it. Jesus is the one you're looking for. Jesus is everything. They did a post-game interview with Tony Bennett, and he said, you know what? It's 40 minutes of a basketball game. It's not going to define us. It's not going to define me. It's not going to define my players because we're living for something bigger. Does your relationship with God cover over every aspect of your life? Is he the very center of who you are? Pay attention to the signs. Everything around you can be falling apart. Is Jesus in the center? And so as if the disciples aren't completely overwhelmed, Jesus has blinded them. They see two dead Bible heroes talking to each other. And now all of a sudden, we read on verse 5, while he was still speaking, meaning God was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. Okay, so again, if you're a good God-fearing Jew, this cloud is a sign. This is going to make a lot of sense. This is beyond huge. If there's any sign in the Old Testament that is associated with God, it is a giant, massive cloud. As the Israelites are traveling in the desert and through the wilderness, that they would be, God's presence would be in this tabernacle that they would travel with. And over the tabernacle, was God's presence was said to be there in a cloud, that God would guide them by a cloud by day. And that's wherever the cloud was, that's where God's presence was. And if God's presence is there, that means that only certain people could enter into God's presence, meaning the priests, and then into the last part of the temple, which was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the chief priest could go. But only certain people could have access into that type of area and actually encounter God. No ordinary people ever got the chance to go into there and experience the cloud. Not what you upload your pictures from your iPhone cloud, but like the cloud, God's presence, the cloud. So here you got three schmucks, Peter, James, and John, that are, ha- that are nobodies, and all of a sudden they are standing in the, cl- the cloud, God's presence. They're right there. They have access because, because of Jesus, they belong. Reminded me of a story, this having complete access. Uh, our kids, this is kind of a second home for them, and you see them running around here all over the place. It reminded me, as a pastor's kid growing up at my dad's church, I knew every space, good hiding place in that church to look for, every room, every closet. I'd explored it all, except there was one place that I'd never dared go, and it was the sacred spot behind the altar and kind of this chancel area. Anybody grow up going to a church that kind of looked 
like this? I did. Anybody kind of have that experience? Yeah, this is maybe what you're a little bit more uh, familiar with instead of the car dealership that we're blessed with uh, here. It looks a little bit different, right? But it's not about style. It's about substance, right? And so here we are, and that's back behind there. I'm like, I've never been back there. It kind of is dark, and it's scary. And this wood thing, the altar that had been there since I grew up as a baby at this church, it had always been there. I was like, I think Jesus made that thing and put it in here. Like, it had been here for a long time. But I'd never gone back there. I'd never seen anybody go back behind it except our choir director, Susan, and she was this kind of older woman, and she was super tall. She's probably only like 5'10", but it seemed like she was seven feet tall when I was seven years old. And I looked up to her, and every time I saw her, she had a choir robe on, and she would walk around like this and just kind of hover over people, and she had this deep voice. I mean, sure it wasn't that deep, but it seemed like it. And she had this really deep voice, and like she always had her choir robe on. I think she lived at the church. like She was always there, and she's the only person I ever saw go back there. Well, one night, my dad was finishing up with a meeting, And I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go where no eight-year-old boy has ever gone before, (laughs) behind the chancel, behind the altar. And so I start tiptoeing back there, and I'm like, it smells like mothballs. I'm like, it smells like my grandma's closet. The Holy Spirit smells like mothballs. This is weird. I'm like going back there, and before I could go any further, I hear the deep voice of the seven-foot-tall choir director, Susan. She says, who is back here? And I'm like, oh no, this is how it's going to end. Pastor's kid murdered behind the chancel. This is it. This is how it's going to end, dead in church. And here I am, and I turn around, and she looks at me, and she says, what are you doing back here? Who said you could be back here? And I'm like, oh, I'm like shaking in my boots, as she's hovering over me. And before I could answer, I hear the voice of my dad say, it's okay. It's okay, Susan. As he puts his arm around me and says, He's with me. He's with me. He belongs. And you can imagine for an eight, seven, eight-year-old boy, this was earth-shattering for me of like, oh, I can be back here. I did it. I have, I have complete access. And so number one, I remember it because I didn't die in church. And number two, more than that, I remembered because I was with my dad, because I was associated with him, I belonged. I had access There was nowhere that was off limits for me. And when Jesus is covered with the cloud of God's presence, God is telling us that because of what Jesus is going to do on the cross, we don't need the cloud anymore. There is no reason for the cloud because there's going to not be any more spaces where you can't go because nothing is going to separate you from my love. Even though you and I stand before a holy God, when he looks at us, he should see sin. But he doesn't because you and I are in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And Jesus, with his arms around all of us, says, there with me. They're with me. They're not dirty, rotten, terrible sinners. They're sinners that have been saved by grace. They are righteous. They are saints. They have been washed clean. They are loved. They are forgiven. They are with me because I have made a way to the Father, Jesus says. There is nowhere, nowhere that you will ever go in your life where you do not have access to Jesus Christ. He has made a way to the Father. You don't need to pray through anybody or to anybody. You have direct access to the God of the universe, not just on Sunday morning, but every single day of the week. God hears you and says, you belong to me. You are with me. And so the sign may be the cloud, but Jesus says, you have unlimited access to me at any time. 
And now you might look at that and go, wow, those are the three big signs and the story's kind of done, but the story doesn't end there. Oh, there's more, a bonus sign for you, a fourth sign for you this morning. Look back at the story at verse 9. Everybody's going to overlook this, I guarantee it. Look back at the story in verse 9. What happens? It says they walked back down the mountain. Some of you completely overlooked that, right? They didn't stay on the mountain. This could have been the pinnacle of Jesus' career. He's on the mountaintop. He's, he's, he's up there. He gets God's endorsement. God speaks. The heavens open up. He's surrounded by the cloud. He talks to Moses and Elijah. I mean, everything. And Jesus is the epitome of success. He is so famous, and he could have very easily just stayed up on that mountain. Because you know what's down in the valley? Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. Monday, Thursday. Good Friday. Death. Boy, it'd be a lot easier for Jesus to stay on the mountain, wouldn't it be? But he didn't. The ministry didn't end there. He went down into the valley. Because fame isn't why Jesus came. Mission was. Jesus went to where the lost and broken, hurting people are. What does Jesus do after his mountaintop experience? He goes into the valley. He gets his hands dirty and messy in people's lives. He serves and he heals and, and he loves. He intentionally chooses to go back down into the valley towards Jerusalem knowing death awaits him. And this is why we encourage you to make these Holy Week services a part of your routine. Maybe you didn't grow up Lutheran. Maybe this isn't a normal thing for you. Like, why do we have a worship service on Thursday or Friday night? This is weird, right? Because we're following the story of Jesus. We're on the Jesus run and we're following him on Monday, Thursday when Jesus washes his disciples' feet when Judas betrays him and he gives us the bread and the wine, you're going to understand communion so much better. It's why we celebrate Good Friday, because if we don't have bad news, there can't be good news. Easter is going to be so much more powerful for you if you don't leave Jesus on the mountain and you follow him down into the valley. So we encourage you to make those services a priority for you and your family. Follow Jesus on the Jesus run. And so often we think that Jesus is there in the mountaintop, in the feel-good, in the, in the warm, fuzzy moments of our lives. The reality is if you want to feel close to Jesus, if you want to get reconnected to him, Jesus is in the valley, not on the mountaintop. And that's the final sign that we have, but it's not just about the fact that Jesus goes into the valley. He goes because, along with us, he's on a mission. And that mission is to save not just Israel from Rome, it's to save us from our sins. Jesus went down into the valley. Where are we called to be today? Not on the mountaintops, remembering the good old days when your faith was on fire at the old church or the old ministry or the old group or when I went on that mission trip seven years ago. Jesus wants to light the fire of your heart today. But if you're going to experience him, we've got to leave the mountain and go into the valley. You want to know where the action is? It's with the people sitting next to you today. So often we think, if I'm going to make a real impact, i got to go into ministry or be a pastor or be a missionary if I'm going to be on mission with Jesus. Do you know that the most significant ministry that you might ever do is under your own roof? The most significant ministry you ever do might be with that coworker that sits next to you every day at work and you've never talked to them, but they are going through a painful divorce. They lost a child. They're in desperate need of somebody to listen to them. And you're missing it because you want to be on the mountaintop and Jesus says, I'm actually in the valley. I hear people say all the time, I want to go deep. My group's not deep enough. I really want to go deep. I'm here because I want to go deep. You want to go deep? 
Go to where the broken and the lost and the hurting are. Get your hands dirty in people's lives. Jesus says, if you're looking for a safe and comfortable way to spend your life, don't follow me then. But if you're looking to have your life be transformed, a faith that's engaged and active, follow me. It's easy to sit on the bleachers. Jesus is calling you into the game. Off the mountaintop and into the valley. And I was thinking about all this talk of heroes and these Bible heroes today. I was thinking about who some of my heroes are, and it occurred to me that in a couple weeks here in April is going to be the 10th anniversary of our church. Yeah, praise God for that. We've been around for 10 years. And I'm still 25, just like the day we started. It's amazing, right? And I was thinking about who my heroes are, and it's those of you that were, and I know some of you are here today, that were here at the very beginning when we were loading everything we have and owned as a church out of that 15-foot trailer that's sitting over there on the side of the building. Loading in chairs and a sound system, every banners every single week, and people getting there at terrible times of the morning, but we were there unloading everything. The, the, my heroes are those that in those early days before we had any classrooms or anywhere to meet were opening up their homes and their, their living rooms and their basements so that we could do Bible studies and classes. Those of you that volunteered to serve every single week, not because it was a, well, I should or I have to out of guilt. It was like, if I don't serve, we don't have church. That's just the reality of it. And so people were taking ownership of the church. Those are my heroes. It's those of you that over the last decade have stepped up to open up your homes and lead small groups. And it's not very glamorous or flashy work that's going to make headline news, but you have poured your life into people that you've led your small group for years upon years. And nobody may ever know, but you are changing people because you're discipling them. You're pointing them towards Jesus. Those are my heroes. My heroes are those of you that came out for our work day yesterday. Some of you maybe didn't realize we had one, but we had an awesome group here for a work day and cleaned what felt like every inch of this building. Every one of these chairs that you're sitting in this morning has been cleaned and prayed for, most importantly. Because you came and some of you did work yesterday at our work day that nobody will ever know except the God of the universe who looks and says, well done, good and faithful servant. My heroes are those of you that are here early in the morning and those of you that are here watching our kids in the nursery, volunteering with Hope Kids, doing all the things that nobody will ever see, here late at night, serving our, our students on Thursday night for Wiz Kids or student ministry, our junior high and high school students on Wednesday nights. That is a lot of work and it's powerful and you're changing people's lives and you do it not because it's glamorous, but because Jesus calls us to it because it's our mission to leave the mountaintop and live in the valley. I love what one of my favorite authors and speakers, uh, Christine Kane says, and I love this quote, she says this, just because something's not known or applauded on earth does not mean that it is not recorded or valued in heaven. Some of you are maybe feeling undervalued or underappreciated, or some of you in your life simply feel insignificant. Jesus says, you want to live a life of significance? Serve. Wash some feet. Do all the things nobody else wants to do. Why? That's what your Savior did. He left the mountain and went to the valley. We long for the mountaintops. And my challenge to you is this. Long for those mountaintop moments, but live your life in the valley. Go to where the people are. Everybody wants to go on mission and talk about it. Not everybody actually goes. Get your hands messy in people's lives. Engage your hearts. Follow Jesus from the mountaintop into the valley. 
we discover the glory of God on the mountaintops. We discover the heart of God in the valley. And his heart this morning is for you. Is for you. Leave the mountaintop, follow the valley, and let's go be the church. Amen? Let's stand and pray together.